Coming up, insurance costs for these attractions are up 200%, and museums are going to OnlyFans to show this art. Plus, takeaways from Halloween events. All that and more coming up on this episode of Green Tech Theme Park and 30. From the Haunted Attraction Network, I'm Philip, and this is day 54 of our 61-day Hauntathon, counting down to Halloween. Today is Sunday, October 24th, and there are only seven days until Halloween. The best way you can support us this Halloween season is by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. And to follow along to our Hauntathon, sign up for our weekly newsletter at hauntedattractionnetwork.com. And now, here's Green Tech Theme Park and 30. From our various locations in the state of Florida, this is Green Tech Theme Park and 30. I'm Philip, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Swenson. Hello, Scott. Hey, Philip. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another week of Green Tag. Um, if you're like the rest of us, uh, when this is being recorded, you are up to your eyeballs in Halloween. Uh, but there are other things going on in the world of themed attractions. We're going to kind of dive into those first. But as I'm sure you expect, we will be talking a little bit about uh, Halloween as, as Philip is in Florida to uh, experience and has experienced quite a few things uh, here in the Tampa Orlando market. And uh, we will uh, get into some of those takeaways in just a moment. Um, but first, uh, let's go, let's leave the state of Florida and go halfway around the world from where we are recording this to Melbourne, Australia. Um, there's some insurance issues going on in Melbourne that seem a little unusual, Philip. Do you know, can you share some of the details on that one? Yeah. So this article comes from the Sydney, Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> and uh, basically, it's just talking about how. Insurance has seen a huge rise for theme parks and attractions in the Australian market, and some as much as 200%. And the main, one of the main data points here is that uh, Luna Park is now paying a million dollars for their public liability insurance, and the coverage is only up to 200 million. And two years ago, it cost $135,000 for 100 million. So only one fifth the amount of coverage at like what? you know, just shy of 10 times the cost. And um, I, the, the article does not really detail why. There, there's no quotes from the insurance companies as to really what is behind this. But this is something that we have talked about even before on the show, about a little bit about what is the post-pandemic insurance world and uh, protections for attractions going to be like. And it just, hopefully this is not an indicator of what will come over here and maybe it's something entirely different uh, or it's just um, you know a smaller market so there's less insurance providers available in the area but um, just was a <laughs> an interesting story I wonder if it has something to do with the 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 wave of people returning to live entertainment I'm wondering mm -hmm. if the the insurance companies are looking at that going you know there's going to be more people attending these things and then of course staffing weighs into that too if if staffing continues to be a challenge and there are more people coming, does that mean that there are more risk factors involved in, in operating rides? I don't know. I'm, this is all conjecture on my part, so I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert, but I, I'm curious as to, as to why there was such a huge increase. And as you say, you know, I kind of scanned the article as well. There was really no mention as to why, just what. Um, so, and of course, when that happens, you know, everybody, if that were to happen, um, uh, if, if it were to happen at other parks around the world, it just means that, you know, once again, there's going to be a, a ticket hike because they're going to have to pay for that somehow. Yes. And uh, so I, I find it very interesting. I also think it's something we definitely need to keep an eye on because it can affect, mm -hmm. it can affect, you know, well, everyone's business, you know, insurance is one of those, is one of those costs that, insurance or that uh, theme parks and zoos and attractions around the, the world have to invest in. They don't have an option. 
So uh, it's it's just going to, someone's going to have to pay for it, and I'm afraid it's going to be the consumer, or it's going to reduce the quality of new product. So fingers crossed that they can explain why, and if this is a permanent shift or just something that is post-pandemic or anticipating mm-hmm. post-pandemic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, our, our next story is... <clears throat> Not seemingly related at all. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it also um, takes place outside of the United States. That's the only link okay, I can think go. of. Yes. It's the only link so, I can think of. Uh, museums in Vienna are taking to OnlyFans to share uncensored art. And that's pretty much the article. <laughs> it's just uh, that the, there are uh, uh, museums in Vienna that have uh, some exhibits that they typically would have liked to share, but places like uh, Facebook and Instagram, you know, have uh, regulations and they have been flagging uh, that artwork as um, violating their their terms of service and whatnot. And so not letting the content go out there. So they're essentially putting the content on OnlyFans to, to be able to share exhibits with fans. I, yeah, I, again... I support this a hundred percent. If uh, you know, yeah. uh, be, being the artist, not not necessarily being the perv, but being the artist that I am, um, I think that there is some some great art there. And this, and by the way, this is not necessarily uh, based on the based on the article because I, I did read this one. Based on the article, it's not necessarily pornographic things that they're trying to share with you. Um, yeah. You know, there's there are paintings throughout history that have betrayed portrait betrayed no portrayed uh, the human body. And um, anytime you have any sort of nudity, it it raises some flags in, uh, in, and I don't know whether it's algorithms or I don't know whether it's guests uh, or content users who are looking at it going, oh, this is a mix of both generally. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I I, I think it is, there's a part of me that thinks it's unfortunate that this is the way they have to share this art. But on the flip side, it also means that those people who are more sensitive to the content uh, can avoid it and not have it just randomly pop up on their feeds based on an algorithm. So um, I, I give the museum credit for making certain that this work does get out there and continuing to share this kind of work. Um, because I know people like, for example, my mother, you know, she, she loves things of a, she loves artwork of a certain period, but the moment there are naked bodies in it, it makes her uncomfortable um, just because of the way she was raised. So uh, I totally get it. And kudos to them for finding a way to get that artwork out there. I think that's yeah. I think that's important. And to to clarify, I did miss misspeak earlier. It is the Vienna Tourist Tourist Board that has launched launched. Oh my gosh! Okay, it is the Vienna Tourist Board that has launched a channel and uh, on called uh, Vienna's eighteen plus content on uh, OnlyFans, and it's because they were facing censorship on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. So uh, it is a collection of multiple, it's collections from multiple museums. So just to clarify. And, and I like that even more, actually, because that's showing that the, the tourism board is, they're not ashamed of what is part of their um, more adult content in what's going on in their city. And uh, they're not trying to whitewash over it. So yeah, good. I like that. I like that a lot. Hmm. Okay. Well, our next story is that uh, In Park Magazine has a new podcast called In Park Tracks, and it is the audio companion to In Park Magazine, exploring the people, projects, and technologies that impact the entertainment industry. And uh, the first is one. The first episode is already out, and it's a three-part series on Ravinia Music Box. And uh, it's just a, an interesting story about the development and the creation of Ravinia. And Ravinia, it's um, 
so the area is an outdoor concert concert venue, and they recently installed a more uh, full themed experience with uh, Leonard Bernstein and and kind of that music. So it's uh, just a really interesting look at at what this concert venue is doing. And so <laughs> also full disclosure, I'm a producer on that show, and I do co-host it uh, with uh, Martin Palicki, the editor and publisher of Empire Magazine. So you know, if you would like to hear more of me and uh, some, and who wouldn't really, you know, who wouldn't? Like <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> He's the one. He's the one with the dulcet tones in his voice. I'm the wise guy on the other end. That's uh, so. Let me let me dive in here just a little bit. So, in this Ravinia story, which Ravinia is this? Because there's there's several around the world. There's several Ravinia festivals around the world. This is the Ravinia Music Box Theater in Chicago Lands so in the Chicago area. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I have. Let me give some full disclosure, and I don't think Philip even knew this. This is a surprise. Um, my high school graduation was held at Ravinia. So uh, I, I walked across the Ravinia, the Ravinia music stage, um, and one of the first concerts I ever saw live was also at the Ravinia, Ravinia Music Festival. So it's, uh, oh. there's, a, there's a personal connection to this as well. Um, but I ask because there's Ravinia festivals in different places around the, uh, around the world, and um, it's, not, it's not a temporary festival when I call it festival. That's just what it used to be called. It's now called something else. Yeah. But it still maintains the Ravinia name. So having grown up in Chicago, that was where my high school graduation was. And my very first live concert, which was uh, flautist Jean-Pierre Rampal. Well, that's in case you were wondering. Well, and so, yeah, you, you can definitely tell why, uh, j- just how, how interesting it is for that outdoor concert venue to add kind of a, a themed show experience. It's uh, actually, it makes a ton of sense because, um, mm-hmm. it is, it, first of all, it is a beautiful outdoor location. Um, mm-hmm. and it was very common. They have, uh, and again, I haven't been there in years, so I don't, I'm not sure quite how it has continued to evolve since the dark ages when I graduated high school. But, uh, the, the way it was set up originally is when you went to a concert at Ravinia, you had basically two completely different experiences. One was the the concert venue, which was a big outdoor amphitheater with seats and, you know, like a traditional concert venue. And then all of the music was um, distributed around the park, uh, which was a gorgeous outdoor space. And people would bring blankets and picnic baskets and wine and sit out just on the grass. You never really even saw the artist. You just enjoyed their music. So with all of that outdoor space, it makes total sense to add more and more and create more of a, a themed attraction experience than just a concert venue with, mm-hmm. uh, with beautiful grounds. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And so I will be, and, and Philip knows I am really not good at listening to podcasts. He knows that. Um, I don't even listen to, I don't listen to ours. I don't listen to my own. Uh, yeah. Um, I am bad at it, but this is something I will definitely tune into because um, again, I have a, a personal connection to it. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. That shares a lot. And it's a three-part series, and it kind of explores the backstory to why they decided to create something like this, and then the creation process, and kind of what the experience is like. So there you go. Okay. Oh, I guess speaking of creating new things. Well, and and unique, really unique approaches to things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as themed attractions. Uh, yes. And leave it to Storyland Story Studios. Studios. Yes. Storyland Studios is going to create a luxury tattoo experience for Fine Ink Studios. And again, we don't have too many details about this yet, but I think that the crux of why we thought this was important, even though the details are not announced yet and the designs aren't out yet, is really just because it 
is exactly what Scott just alluded to. It, it is another example of a brand and kind of like retail tainment of taking a brand and extending the experience to create a, a full experience. And I just like the this idea because I guess in my brain you are, uh, well, I don't know, I haven't had, a, I've, I've not had a tattoo, so... Uh, but I feel like I have this image of of it being an experience in of itself, of of going to get the tattoo, and it, it's it's such a a personal thing. And again, it's something that makes sense now that you look at it in hindsight, where you're like, oh, let's take this experience and make it just heighten it and make it even better, and just take something that people are already doing that's already very personal and extend the life of that. Well, so. and I'm with you, Philip. I too don't have a tattoo yet. Um, I've been planning one since I was in high school, which again, as we've just identified was a gazillion years ago, but, um, but my friends who are, who are tattooed and my friends who have, um, multiple tattoos, they will basically say you are marking a moment in time. And if you think about it, that's no different than the first time you visit a major theme park. Um, you are marking a moment in time and you want something to remember that forever. So why not make that experience something special? And so that's why I think this makes total sense. Another thing that I think is very interesting uh, that we've, we hadn't even planned, but the connections are here, where you know, here we are, a, a, uh, a show that is dedicated to the industry of themed attractions. And we've already talked about fans only um, art in, in, in Vienna and creating a uh, themed experience for uh, tattoo art. It, theme parks ain't just for kids anymore. You know, there's a whole generation that has grown up on theme parks. And so if you are a theme park owner, um, whether it's or, or work in a theme park environment that is either huge or small, independent, um, even, you know, fun centers and zoos and aquariums and that sort of thing, don't lock yourself into, you know... I've had, I've had several clients uh, talk to me about, well, we have to make sure that we're true to our legacy. Um, but a legacy is something you build off of. It is not something you get locked into. So as you, as you move forward, it is clear that different organizations are taking what we already do in the themed entertainment industry and applying them to more adult, more grown-up, um, more... I mean, even the Ravinia story that we were talking about, you know, less, less, uh, less uh, family friendly, more broader age demographic so that they can start to oh. reach out to these, these, uh, this, this demographic that is growing out of the theme park, the traditional theme park mentality and growing into adulthood. And they're looking for experiences that are similar to what they had as a kid only that apply directly to them as adults. So I think that's something that's certainly a trend that uh, yep. keep in the back of your mind because it's yep. theme parks ain't just for kids anymore. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> as theme parks are not just for kids anymore, that means they're attracting a lot of consumers. And we've been talking about demand and being able to satisfy demand. And a big piece of being able to satisfy that demand is, of course, staffing. And uh, here... <laughs> Here we have another uh, piece, this time from the Boston Globe. So it's starting, I feel like it's starting to get mainstream. We're mainstream. Yeah. We're mainstream. Or at uh, least this <clears> time of year we are. You know, everybody wants to talk about Halloween the week of Halloween. So, yes. So the Boston Globe has an article in here about the uh, staffing shortage at haunts. <laughs> they go on to say, 
Haunts, as they are called in industry parlance, are struggling to hire and retain actors while also trying to rebound from last year's pandemic-driven losses. Many haunts were forced to close last Halloween season, while others opened to a limited number of visitors or scare performing behind plexiglass barriers. And customers are noticing. Online reviews for some popular New England attractions are riddled with complaints about hardly any characters or not enough people to scare you. For haunt owners and operators this Halloween season, there is nothing more terrifying than too few ghouls. Well, and you know, this is something we've we've talked about several times. Um, and I, I think that uh, one of the things that we're experiencing now in several of the attractions that I've contributed to this year is maintaining that staff, number one. Yeah. And secondly, maintaining the quality of that staff. Uh, you know, and again, this is, I'm speaking in generalities here because I've seen it in, in multiple locations that I've been involved in, and I'm sure it's true um, across the industry, is that, you know, during the pandemic, people's mentality towards work changed. And I think also some of our work stamina changed, or for some people, uh, mine actually increased because I worked more, but um, the, because uh, I was already working from home, so it was not a shift, you know, <laughs> there you go. Um, but I, I think that that people have decided, you know, this, I'm tired, this is a little hard, I'm going to take an extra day off to to binge watch something on Netflix, because that's what we have been doing for the last two years. So um, I think that's part of it. I also think that people, um, like I said, the whole going back to the work stamina thing for just a moment, they're not used to doing what they did before the pandemic. Um, and I think this is especially true with hot actors. I mean, it, hot actors, it's a hard gig. And, um, you know, people's people are out of shape, quote unquote, whether it's physically or mentally, um, to be able to, to maintain this. Um, I also think that there is a... Um, what I've discovered in a couple of situations is there's an excuse mentality. It's like, well, I can't quite do this because of this, or I can't quite do this because of that. You know, when you're when you're only responsible to yourself when you're in quarantine, and then you come out and have to be responsible to not only your bosses and the expectations, but also keeping the show running, um, you have to you feel as though you have to come up with excuses to justify, oh, I can't quite do this, or I can't quite do that. Um, when the reality, I think, in many cases is I don't want to do that. Uh, so what we can do as industry folks is continue to ramp up even more the, the benefits to keep people enthusiastic about their jobs, to make them want to work, not just for the paycheck, but also for other, um, for other sparks and perks. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Let, me, let me give a perfect example. Um, Dorney Park in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, has um, they have an entire line of merchandise that can only be purchased with their um, reward money, basically for their haunt performers. So there are things that that regular guests can't even purchase. But by doing a great job and consistently doing a great job, these uh, these performers can collect these uh, this sort of um, fake Halloween money, and uh, then they can use that throughout the season to purchase souvenirs that are that change out each year that are dated and that can only be purchased by haunt characters. So to me, that is a really intelligent way of incorporating, um, incorporating a, not only, not only a way to retain and, and reward performers, but also to help market the event 
uh, from the inside. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a win win there, but it's it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to help with our with our ongoing labor shortage. Yeah, and well, <clears throat> this is a good <clears throat> segue into our last section, which is another takeaways from shows that we've been seeing or that we've been working on, and that's kind of already we've already touched on that because Scott mentioned some examples, um, and another. I'll mention some stuff I've noticed. I've noticed that uh, stuff like uh, Universal, Halloween Horror Nights, you know, they've they're kind of almost finally up to full staff. <laughs> so um, that's the other part of this is a lot of, and I've I've spoken with a lot of haunts over the past week, like lots of haunts. We've been interviewing almost nonstop um, folks, and I will say it's not as uh, cut and dry, just as we mentioned. Um, I think it, I think regardless, it is a good idea to do staff retention. Mm-hmm. And we've mentioned last episode about what Zootampa is doing, and Scott gave him a great example just now. And previously, we mentioned the Scarret badges, but any of those things are great. But what I've noticed too is that it also is very role dependent. You know, a lot of haunts um, are fully staffed with their actors, or especially with their returning cast, and then the haunts that are. Um, targeting more of the sophisticated adult crowd, which Scott mentioned earlier at the top of the show, that are able to pay a little bit more, those are doing relatively fine in terms of their paying for a professional, quote-unquote, more professional, professionally trained actors. And those people are ravenous to get back to work because it's what they want to do. But then on the other side, and then you see people like Universal who has been hiring this entire time, <laughs> and they're almost finally, like, the week of Halloween, they are, like, finally fully staffed, which is crazy. Um but then on the other side of that, um, it almost doesn't really matter who you are. You know, the, those F&B and those retail positions are just hard to fill. And the experience for those cast members is generally less than it is working at an, you know, a Starbucks or a McDonald's or an Amazon or whatnot that, that kind of has a better infrastructure in place for those act for for those retail and point of sale people. So I think that that's where I in my reporting at least specifically that is where I have seen the struggling. Less really in the actors, uh, especially in the places that are targeting older demographics, but across the board in the point of sale people, your ticket takers and your uh, people that are dealing with food and beverage and merchandise and all those people. Um, security is kind of a um, I've heard it's kind of a either way. It really depends for security on how much you're paying security, because mm-hmm. because security is a career, and it just you know just like with acting, so it can be something where you can get highly trained security officers that look forward to doing the Halloween event because they enjoy it, and that's your best case scenario. But <clears throat> very few people kind of look forward to you know working a, a food cart at a Halloween event. So well, and and. It's not even Halloween. Food and food and beverage culinary is always um, difficult to to staff in a theme park, mainly because the pay is uh, either comparable or even some in some markets slightly below what they can make at a McDonald's or a Wendy's or a Wawa yep. or whatever. Yep. And um, so you really, I'm hoping that the that theme parks recognize some of the same retention ideas that we've been talking about um, for performers can also be implemented for their culinary staff, their operational team, um, because I think it will, it will help them in the long run. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's, um, so the next show that uh, I want to mention is, uh, the clown Academy. And this 
<laughs> is it I guess the best way to describe this is it's a hybrid between an escape room and a haunted house. And so the designers they wanted to have more interactivity than a regular kind of conga line uh, maze, but they wanted to have higher throughput than what you would get in a regular escape room. And so they kind of what they ended up with is a an experience and I guess what I like about this experience is I like that that it is kind of borrowing elements from each place, and I do like that it has a little bit higher throughput because that's always, um, the, unless you're going with a very high-end, high-ticket price experience, um, having a little bit more throughput will help you um, maintain margin, of course. Uh, but what I like about it is that the theme is so well, it's so tight, and really interesting quick puzzles in each room but the premise is that you are showing up to the clown academy to enroll and you are going through the school and kind of in each room is a different test of clownery and they're maybe two to three minutes they're not very long tests and they're pretty simple but it's kind of just enough to make it a different palette taste you know kind of a palette experience than uh going through a maze and there are still scary moments and uh, very good acting but Kind of just, um, you know, my takeaway from that is this like um, task-based horror experience and just kind of um, thinking that there's still uh, easy ways of working in simple tasks into rooms like that. And of course, Scott, you know, this is, I feel like you, you started this train what, like 10 years ago or when you did like alone. Well, again, it's, I, I, I loved, you know, I... Everyone's like, are you? Do you ever get upset when when things come out that are that are comparable to what you've done in the past? And and you know, do you feel as though somebody has copied your idea? And my answer is absolutely not. Um, it just kind of proves that we knew kind of what we were doing back then, and and hopefully we can continue to build on it. Um, there are other things, obviously, that I've done in my my <laughs> the past of my career that didn't work quite so well, and kind of hopefully faded quietly into the background. So uh, <laughs> I I get that too, but um, no, I I. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, they're to throw in a really cheap plug. It sounds like they're following the story. So, <laughs> yeah. Follow the story. <clears throat> My book available everywhere. Uh, but, um, and it was, and it was edited by Philip. So, you know, uh, yeah, but yeah. anyway, um, the, uh, the idea of creating an immersive experience where guests are not just spectators. They are actually a character. That's one of the things that we talk about and follow the story. And, and I try to explain to, uh, my clients and my actors whenever I'm training them is the guest has to play a role. And this is a perfect example of that. The guest yeah. is the, in essence, new recruit. So, yeah. uh, so I think and, that's and the creators, really the creators really get that too, because when I ask them about the training and all that, you know, they're, they're like, you're, they're like, you know, these people are existing in their space. The characters are existing in their space and you are entering their space and they have, you know, they're clown teachers. Like you're, you're, it's not like you walk in and the scene starts you know, it right. is continuously ongoing. Um, and the um, the next one that I want to mention is Sir Henry's Haunted Trail in uh, here in Florida. And mm -hmm. what this year, Sir Henry's, they it's their eighth year, and they actually made a, a novel, a full novel, uh, in partnership with local writers. And I was like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Um, it's something that in the past, uh, 
I, I did um, something similar for um, The Vault of Souls, its first two years, where we actually wrote a book of poetry um, that helped define the characters and give backstory. I like this even more because it's reaching out into the community, um, giving local artists, local writers an opportunity for um, inclusion and participation. And it, it, it really anchors the haunt in the local community, which I, kudos, kudos and credit. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it's a full length novel and I just, it, it does all of that, but it, it's just the, the story of how they arrive there is, is just, it's great. Um, but it just, it's a good example of, of, you know, they're, they're not a, a huge theme park, you know, this is a, a local run, uh, kind of more community haunt and and they started off using a lot of local community actors and they built mythos over the years um so it's just it's i and just like what, what you just said scott these are just very accessible ways and now the thing is you have this this um starting place so when you bring in new actors you have this thing this uh, background you can hand them and it helps them understand the whole uh everything's going on Okay, and our next one here is uh, Goblins and Giggles, and this is so. This is the event at the Gaylord Palms, uh, also here in Orlando. And I just visited this, and uh, I think many people know the Gaylord Palms for their ice event during the holiday season. And this is their Halloween event. It is much smaller of a footprint, um, but kind of the reason I'm mentioning this is um, we've talked previously about doing family-friendly Halloween and how that you know that's that's also a thing. And this is just a, a really neat themed experience that happens in a hotel like kind of inside the main atrium they've built this little ghoul school and it is is essentially four different scenes where you go through and you kind of again very similar i guess i'm a similar Khan academy but you go through different tests and you interact with each scene and it's everything from learning how to pose like with the scarecrow to um learning how to rap a song with the mummy and doing like a mad lib character to, um, you know, just really cool interactive um, experiences like that. And it just kind of is another example of how even in a hotel space, you know, putting together something for fam for families to coordinate with together to that can be task-based and also kind of spooky. And for those of you who haven't experienced any of the, any of the, the Gaylord resorts, um, to call them a hotel, I think, is a is a un, kind of underserving what they really do. Uh, it's a full mm -hmm. environment, and they do these kinds of seasonal events um, to help uh, not only give guests something to do while they're there, but also to encourage them to lengthen their stay. I mean, they are they they want to sell rooms. They're they're not selling a theme park experience; they're selling a room experience. However, this their their resorts have, especially the one in, in Orlando, uh, has three different very diverse looking environments that are all indoors and you know one is is um themed sort of key west and and the and the and and i, I don't want to necessarily go pirate but that's kind of the the vibe it gets um there's there's another one that is very swampy and then there's another one that's very uh, beachy or oceany and when they do things like this because they do them for multiple seasonal experiences um they do that so that they can get the guests to get out and experience the entire resort and not just see the resort from the balcony of their room. So yep. it's uh, it's a great it's a great inclusion. It's an awful lot of fun. I've done some of their other ones. I haven't done Goblins and Giggles, but I have done uh, some of their other seasonal or short run experiences throughout the year. Um, speaking of short run, guess what, Philip? We've run out of time. There's my dad transition. Wow. How's that? Okay. Well, 
Um, guys, once again, thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of our listeners because I've had a lot of people who have either commented on social media or have come up to see me in person when I'm at events. And they have said, you know, we really appreciate what you guys do on Green Tagged. And I'm glad. Um, I, I'm glad you're getting something out of it. Thank you so much for listening. Please share your uh, experiences with other people who might be interested. And until next time, on behalf of, behalf of Philip Hernandez with Gantam Lighting and the Haunted Attraction Network and myself, Scott Swenson, we will see you next week. This is a Haunted Attraction Network.